Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And this is David Parker. And today we are doing the 1952 John Steinbeck classic, East of Eden. Kind of a dramatic retelling of the Garden of Eden, however set in the Salinas Valley of California. And in New England. Yeah, the beginning is in New England, right? And this is one of Stein. Well, I would say it's his best book. Oh yeah, I th- well he considered it his epic. Yes, because like, it was of... much later in his career. Like I think *Grapes of Wrath* and *Mice of Men* that were written in the late '30s, and then this one was 1952. So he'd had you know another decade and a bit to let marinate his creative genius, and I think it all came out in this book. Well, and even the way he talks about it is like. He wanted this to be his crime and punishment or his um, brother's Karamazov, like kind of his masterpiece. Yeah, so. and it's it's one it's probably the biggest book he wrote. That's, I mean, I have the Penguin's Classic Edition, and it's clocks in at just over six hundred pages. So it's it's definitely not a novel for the faint of heart. No, no, not at all. This is a, such a great book, and. One that, weirdly, because there's so many really dark things that happen and it fills fills my heart with so much joy. It's hard to explain exactly why. There's just a, there's enough rays of light. Yeah, it's the finding of hope in these really dark yeah. places that uh, we see these characters going through things that would ruin people. And sometimes it does ruin them and sometimes it doesn't, but it's how they're dealing with that through yeah. the process. And such an interesting style of writing a book, too, where there are so many really big ideas. And this is a big idea book, but the dialogue is very, it's it's not simplistic, but it's pretty simple. Like the way that Steinbeck gets his characters to talk to each other, it's often like, there'll be like a lot of one word parts of their turn of the conversation. Uh, how was your day? fine yeah <laughs> yeah there's there's a realness to it right it's yeah. uh it seems like real dialogue that you everyone, can imagine people having everyone seems tired yeah <laughs> like everyone's just tired at a book like how was your day fine i'm exhausted would you like your dinner yet yes <laughs> i've been cooking it all day for you <laughs> thank you, you. Have, did, did you have a a moment of existential disillusionment today in the field <laughs> oh why I, yes i did of course <laughs> It's just like, so once you start digging at the ideas that Steinbeck is getting at, and then (laughs) compare it to kind of the mundane nature of the dialogue, it's really funny. Well, and a lot of it is actually kind of Steinbeckian monologue from himself, basically telling us about the history, articulating ideas that he's obviously developed over a long time. But most importantly, in my opinion, that he wants this to be a book that truly explores what it's like to be a human. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so it's no surprise that the backdrop is Genesis. Yes. Right? Because it's supposed to be not even just what it's like to be human, but like how that started. Like what's the start of it? Uh, which is a great theme that runs in the book. And John Steinbeck is one of my favorite authors ever. And I was, you know, as I've gotten a little older, I'm like, okay, well, why is that? Like, what is different about him? Because there's a lot of great writers and a lot of great writers who write better dialogue, I think, than he does. Or even have better prose, like in general. Yeah. Yeah. But he does something so interesting. And it's most obvious in this book and Grapes of Wrath, because those are the biggest books. So you can flesh it out the most, I think. But he does this, and we, we mentioned this last time with Huck Finn. He goes macro, micro, better than any author I think I've ever read, where he'll have three pages of a chapter where he's kind of like meditating on America, like this whole country, the desolation, the emptiness, the wide emptiness, and how, and like, and so he takes these really grand themes and then weaves them into the interplay of the relationships of his characters in the next chapter. And so it's like bird's eye view of the whole place and like definitely tinged with a kind of reserved sadness almost. The way he describes the natural world of California and in Grapes of Wrath, a lot of the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, you're just kind of like there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a beautiful loneliness to his take and then he just focuses right back in on the people and their the minu- the minutia of their lives and, and and i just think he does that better than any writer i've ever read yeah the transitions also feel really smooth right like you were saying it could feel in certain books like that the going from the macro to the micro can feel jarring yeah but it's not that way at all in this it's like oh i exa- i know exactly why i said that a good example is one of my favorite books lay miz there's a hundred page section that's just talking about the War of eighteen twelve and it has basically no tie into the book whatsoever. Like you could not read that and it would not impact the story at all. Whereas you don't see this at all that sounds in Steinbeck. Miserable. Oh, it's it's not a great time when you're reading through and you're like, Oh miserable. Oh. I missed that one. I missed it. It's nicely okay. done. Nicely done. I, I can edit it so that so that it sounds so like that it. your laugh happens right after the joke. <laughs> and then no one's the wiser. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Like how, because with Steinbeck, he's using so much interesting detail in his grand observations about what seems to be happening. Like he's like, he gives personification to the trees and the the cars going down the lonely California roads to nowhere kind of thing. In a way, like you, you get this like a really weird emotional attachment to this kind of like landscape that he's like. How? Yeah. How would you? It's it's supposed to just it's just the world, but he makes you care about. And he kind of does it really well with I think Samuel talking about Samuel's love for his farm, the 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 dust pile that yeah. he's been trying to grow things out of, where no one can really understand his, why. No, and but Samuel's he, so but he loves it so much, and you kind of feel attached to that dust pile at the end of everything. You're yep. like, oh, the Hamiltons are giving up their farm. Why? Well, it, it again, the kind of nerd in me, I can't help but chuckle. Like I feel like Steinbeck's winking and nodding at us as the audience with this really simple prose and simple dialogue and then these really deep and thoughtful meditations on nature and personifying it 
in his in, other chapters. And these intense emotions about personal relationships. Yeah. Like, he's making you feel these relationships in a way I don't think a lot of other authors are even capable of doing. Yeah, like, and you, so you're like, you kind of, you hate Kathy, but you also feel so bad for her. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and then you're, you're just like, I can't help, like, I'm left chuckling with like, oh, this great insight came from the guy who wrote the, want to have dinner? Yeah. <laughs> You want to go to bed? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's yeah. like, like I'm not, I'm exaggerating a bit, but I'm not being too facetious. Like his dialogue is not much more complicated than that. Except yet, for in those moments, like you said, where, oh, did you have an existential thought in the field? Yeah. And then they're like, well, oh, it, it gets a, there. It gets there a few parts in the yeah. book. Anyway, so David, tell us what happens in this book. Okay, so it's a long book, so I'm not going to do an exhaustive uh, plot summary, but... So we start off with two families, basically the Hamiltons and the Trasks. And the Trasks are this kind of down-on-their-luck family, pioneering. Their dad was a soldier. His name is Cyrus. He had a wife who died, and then he had another wife who died. And there were two sons out of these two different relationships. Uh, The sons are Charles and Adam, Adam being the oldest and Charles being the youngest, but uh, Charles being so much stronger and much more confident and kind of like more worldly but he also has got this this strange streak running through him of violence and anger and we we find out of why that is later but uh, it's very interesting because at first you get the impression that Steinbeck is claiming that it's nature and nature is what dictates and even when he introduces Kathy nature is what dictates your personality, your your future, how you're going to treat people. But then you see later on that he's, he's challenging that. It's a very complex narrative. But anyway, we start with those three. And uh, there is a little scene with Charles' mother and the relationship that she has with Adam and how Adam feels loved by her. But basically, we have them and then we have this other large family called the Hamiltons. And uh, they're actually more secondary characters, but they play a very large role in the narrative and potentially they're some of the most engaging characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the, and I think like the narrator of this book is a descendant of the Hamilton. Yes. Yes. Olive's son. Yeah. But he uses his own name. I think John Steinbeck does like, there's a weird, there's a kind of weird, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book. If any of you've ever read the book, uh, breakfast of champions by Kurt Vonnegut, there's a part of that book where a recurring character in all the Kurt Vonnegut books is Kilgore Trout, and Kilgore Trout starts having a conversation in the book with Kurt Vonnegut, which is a real mind trip. And there's like an element of that happening in this book where this is a work of fiction, and yet John Steinbeck has named himself as the narrator, and his name is John in the and book. And a descendant of this family, <laughs> yes. right? And so this this family's settled in... California in this valley, which kind of is the setting of the book, apart from the Trask family, which had settled in New England, and that was kind of where they were from, and they were more involved in the Civil War. So what happens is Charles' mother dies. There's a fight between Charles and Adam where Charles tries to kill Adam, but it doesn't succeed. Adam runs off to the military, or sent off to the military, but Charles isn't allowed to go to the military. And there's this whole part of the book where they're exchanging letters. And basically, Adam is a lost soul. He doesn't have a direction in life. He joins the military on his way home after his first five years. He just re-enlists, does another five years. 
And meanwhile, Charles is building up the farm, taking care of the farm, and actually becoming quite a successful farmer. But that's all he does. He doesn't have any relationships. He doesn't have any friends. And he really cares about Adam, even though he remembers that he tried to kill him. And there's this very complex relationship that we can get into between the two of them. But their father, Cyrus, goes to Washington, D.C. and ends up becoming quite a famous military strategist, ends up getting a lot of money and dies and leaves this money to Adam and Charles. But in the meantime, Charles leaves the military and is basically a tramp or a hobo. Adam. Three- Adam. Sorry. Adam becomes a tramp or a hobo, wanders the earth, gets ended up getting enlisted in a chain gang yes. for a year. Uh, so he has quite the adventures before he finally arrives back home and is kind of more stabilized with Charles's two old bachelor men on the farm. And then on the other side... We have the Hamiltons, you know, they can't really grow any food on their property, but there's nine kids and, the, and there's a great line in it where they grew one great crop and it was these kids, like they're highly respected and loved in the community. Very industrious, yeah. hardworking, good sense of humor. People good looking you, apparently. Yeah, people like, you both want on the job site and at the party. Exactly. And their father, uh, the Samuel Hamilton, is just this joyful Irishman who loves telling stories and is always dreaming up new ideas. But he never makes any money off his farm. So basically, he's kind of the, the valley handyman. He's like building things. Yeah, for he's people. my favorite character in the <laughs> yeah. book. Oh, I love him too. He's, he's a fascinating character. And his wife is Liz, or Lisa. And she's this hard. Like, she's stout, a very stout hearted <laughs> yeah, Christian lady. Very just single minded. She's like, I, uh, the life is suffering. My job's to take care of my family. Like, like it's still almost a sin. To bone Samuel for a kid, yeah, but not, but she's not sure, and like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's definitely like, uh... it's, anything could be a sin. Like you stay, she, like there's that great line where she's like, she always got up before dawn, and she always went to bed uh, at like nine because nothing good could ever come of doing either. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Staying up past nine, nothing good could ever happen. Yeah, and getting up later than dawn, nothing good could happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, there's constant references to like, you know. She spoke regularly with the good Lord and knew exactly what he thought on everything. Yeah. <laughs> right? She so. was his conduit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was lucky. Yeah, it was lucky. So there's, uh, we, I won't go through all the names of the kids, but there's the kind of important ones are Tom and Will and all, Olive, who's the mother of the narrator, and we hear about them throughout the book. But they're kind of like um, flavor to the story. Uh, they don't, they don't drive the story. So after all this money's come in. We're introduced to another character named Kathy, and Kathy is a psychopath from as far, as far as we can tell, and there's this great introduction to her where we're basically told about how she just doesn't feel like other people, she doesn't think like other people, uh, she's kind of essentially has no conscience and is ruthlessly selfish. Yeah, I think there's a line describing her that says, to a monster, the norm is monstrous. Yeah, yeah. If you're outside of the norm, then you're, the normal seems evil. And through a series of events, she kills her parents, ends up swindling this uh, whore master, so basically this guy who runs whorehouses, into falling in love with her. But then he realizes the error in his ways and is taking her basically to become a whore in one of his whorehouses. And... She upsets him so much that he just beats the crap out of her and, like, leaves her for dead. And at this moment, she stumbles upon Adam and Charles. And Adam falls in love with her, and Charles 
can see that there's this evil in her and he's like you can't marry her there's something fundamentally wrong with her she's horrible and adam just blows up on him she ends up then marrying adam but then on their wedding night sleeping with charles (laughs) and yeah it's it's, pretty fucked up it's a pretty messed up situation and then they end up going out to this valley where the hamiltons live in california in california she realizes she's pregnant tries to have or sort of self-impose an abortion fails ends up having twins Hates the idea of having kids and living with Adam so much that she shoots him, starts her own whorehouse. Eh. But doesn't kill him. No, but doesn't kill him. Goes to a whorehouse in Salinas. Which, uh, as a more flavor, is the town that John Steinbeck was born in. <laughs> there you go. So, goes to Salinas, and she has a career where she basically takes over the whorehouse by killing the madame and turning it into more of a... Uh, dominatrix sort of uh, <laughs> whorehouse. And all of this is happening within the context of these two twin boys growing up without a father. Caleb and Aaron. Car- Caleb and Aaron. But Caleb more goes by Cal. So, you know, there's obvious allusions to Cain and Abel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically, Adam's so heartbroken because he was so in love and she transformed his life and given him meaning that he just kind of wastes the next 11 years. And... In the course of that, uh, his kids are, are raised by his Chinese manservant named Lee. And Lee is very good friends with Samuel Hamilton. And Samuel Hamilton is one of the only people in the book who treats Lee as not an outsider, but as an equal. And they become very good friends. Then Samuel dies. Uh, and Adam is kind of roused from his slumber. Before Samuel dies, right before he dies, he tells Adam that Kathy's actually been running this whorehouse not very far away from where he lives for all this time. Kind of breaks him, but also rebuilds him. But he proceeds to, you know, continue the sins of his father's, picks a favorite son. This causes all kinds of turmoil in Cal, feeling that he isn't loved by his father, trying to prove himself. Cal ends up being quite the uh, business genius and very good at, at doing business. And he actually is doing business with William, who's the son of Samuel Hamilton. And which is funny because Adam ends up losing the entire fortune that was donated or that was his, uh, inher- that he inherited from his father with, with a refrigerated uh, transportation play. <laughs> and so they're kind of broke. So Cal's like, well, I'm going to save the family fortune ends up making $15,000, which is a, a lot back then and going to gift it to his father. Meanwhile, Aaron is this kind of angelic boy who just wants to go into the priesthood, and he's going to go to Stanford to to join the priesthood, and he's definitely Adam's favorite. And it's the same situation that happened between Charles and Adam, where Adam was the favorite, and so the sins of the fathers to the next generation. Right. Anyway, long story short, Cal, who has this streak of meanness in him, when his father rejects the 15000 because of how he got it, which was actually kind of wrong, he was buying, he was arbitraging beans, basically buying them at a very low price from California farmers and selling them at a much higher price to consumers in the UK. His father rejects the money and Cal... Which would have bailed him out. Which would have bailed him out. And Cal just kind of loses it and tells Aaron that their mother's actually still running a whorehouse, takes his brother to meet Kathy... And this just kind of ruins Aaron, and he immediately joins the military and goes off and dies in World War One. And then the conclusion of the story is Adam and Cal and Lee dealing with this. Yeah. 
And that's that's a basic plot summary. And all and also with Cal and Aaron, they have this other friend whose name oh, yes. is Abra, who kind of hangs out with them. And originally, she's she's gonna marry Aaron, and then Aaron dies, so that can't happen. And then I think she marries Cal. She does marry Cal, and and it's interesting because a lot of the relationship between Abra and Aaron and Abra and Cal is like the difference between looking at the ideal version of a person versus someone who's struggling with reality because in a sense and this is what lee says about aaron he was a coward he checked out from reality he just separated himself from it completely and like went into the ministry it just became too high-minded mm-hmm. and wasn't dealing with the the realities of and life. then and then that so affected his relationships with other people because he was coming into every interaction with another person again whether it be a stranger or his family or abra with this kind of most ideal version of a, an argument or a situation and no one else could just measure up to his expectation of that and so he kind of was almost a little bit socially unable to <laughs> interact with people because no one could be quite at his standard yeah yeah exactly so that was and tough <laughs> i mean it's a really interesting uh, reflection on what happens to people when they elevate one thing above all else yeah yeah so i mean it's a really dense book. Like, there's definitely so much happening, and yet it's not exactly a plot-driven book. There's a it's kind actually of... more of a setting-based book in a yes. sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, the setting kind of it doesn't drive the narrative, but it's it what it's what gives it a body. Yeah, and that's what Steinbeck does. Like, he really the setting of his books are a character in the story, and the kind of spirit of going west and making your mark in California at that time when they went and how all of that really interplays with the the point of this book is all the characters relationships with each other. Yes. That's that's yeah. why this book was written. Yeah, it's a relationally it's, driven book for sure. So all the plot stuff is backdrop to all of that. So I think we should probably start with Adam. Yep, he's, I think that's a good place to start. He's this book is in definitely an ensemble cast, so there isn't exactly a main character. But if there was, it probably would be Adam. I think he we get his perspective the most, uh, and certainly from when he's a young man to when he's an old man. Just to start off with him, then the thing with Adam is that, and obviously you can guess which Garden of Eden character Adam is representing. <laughs> the thing that was so interesting about Adam is that he is very kind and he is very willing to help but he just doesn't seem to have that extra sense to protect himself from things that aren't overt danger like he obviously he would know how to get out of the way of a well, it weren't really cars yet, so a speeding horse running at him, he'd know how to <laughs> a run carriage away. barreling down. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he, but he, he seems too naive of potential dark, hidden motivations in other people, and that is the theme that really comes back to just fuck him over so many times in the movie. Most obviously with Kathy, but the way that he's kind of also not able to see a bubbling up danger in Charles and even in his son Cal and and there's just these little things that he's he'd rather overlook I don't know like the, like just things you notice in other people where you're like oh 
that comment could lead to a darker place or that style of talking makes me think that this person actually has a more devious intention. And he just seems unable to grapple with any of that, which puts him in, well, he gets shot. Yeah. So representatively, he's just too gullible. And that, I guess, if you go with the Eden reference, like that brings down paradise. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not well-guarded enough. Well, and I think it's interesting because at the beginning of the book, you see him constantly walking on eggshells, watching what Charles is doing, afraid of Charles and afraid of his father. There's two moments in the book, one where he realizes he's not afraid of Charles anymore and another where he realizes he's not afraid of his father. And it's almost as if when he realizes that he's not afraid of either of them, he stops fearing anything at all, which is not the appropriate response, right? Like... You should have a certain level of fear because there are people out there, there are wolves out there, mm-hmm. hard-minded, hard-hearted wolves will just take you down. And I mean, Kathy's a perfect example. Yeah, because Kathy, like he meets Kathy. I think she's like bloodied and crawled up on their oh, doorstep, she's just like, right? Because this is right after she got many beat up, broken bones, yeah. like. And so obviously, Adam, like anyone, has an immediate sympathetic feeling towards her, and so he wants to help. But like, also, this is influenced by uh, how Alice helped him, who I think was Charles's biological mom. Yeah. 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 Uh, But she was super kindly to Adam. And so he kind of, it says in the book that he kind of projected that onto Kathy when she was there. Was that, oh, Alice helped me. Now I'm in a position to help you. And so it's great. It's a great character portrayal because it's, it's it's not just he's stupid and he gets fucked over by people because he also is truly motivated to want to help yeah his underlying motivation is always okay how can i help other people that is kind of what he does the whole book and yet it's still it's it's only half it's only half of what you need it feels like it's like that feels that to me is what it feels like steinbeck is saying is that that goodness is necessary but not sufficient to being able to do good in the world because yeah. he, he still like he has the impulse to do good, but he lacks the discernment to protect himself. And most obviously with Kathy who just really messes well, him up. And, and I think uh, an interesting point on that is he projects an image of something on her and she, he doesn't even really listen to her. Like she'll say things like, I don't want to move to California or I'm going to leave you after these kids are born. And he just, doesn't even phase him it's as if i mean it's very odd because i think if most of the people listening to this had someone say that to them they take it pretty seriously but adam seems he's lost in his own world of of happiness i guess at this point where he's like i've found someone to love i found someone who loves me and it's interesting that his delusion is so great that it completely destroys his world when it's broken like Mm -hmm. he can't function well that that's the punchline Right, that's the punchline of not being able to be in reality enough to know when it's going to get you. And so, yeah, when you were saying that, it reminded me of like a teenager who's uh, yeah so enraptured with the idea of something of someone. With Kathy, he's enraptured with this idea of okay, we're going to move to California, we're going to start a family, it's going to be perfect. And even though it's not okay now, there's a line from Nietzsche too where he says. The desire is always more important than the desired. 
And so it's like that emotional attachment you have to a feeling as opposed to what your relationship is actually like with the person who your feeling is for. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's digging into a really deep psychological fact that I have felt in my own life many times. Not not as much as I've gotten a little older, but definitely in, you know, my teen years and my early twenties where it's just like, oh, if I just do this this relationship will work out. Or if I just do that, right? And Adam just can't seem to get past that. Well, and I think it's interesting that Adam, it seems, hasn't had many relationships up to this point. He had one relationship with, uh, he calls her a squaw. Like, <laughs> apparent, I don't know, apparently this was a thing that happened in uh, in this time period. But that's really the only other one we hear about. We don't hear about him even being interested in any other woman. And... I think it's a it's a relational maturity thing to be able to look at a person and see them for who they are, not who you want them to be. Like even even in friendship when you're dealing with another person, one of the best things you can do is not put expectations on them for them to act a certain way or be a certain way because those expectations are actually putting a pressure on them that might actually be pressuring them to be something they're not. And especially in relationships, that kind of pressure is just death. Yeah. So the line I wrote down is that he hasn't um, he hasn't danced enough yet with reality so that when he does, he's unpracticed and it just shatters his illusions. Ka- Kathy, you know, shooting him. <laughs> Literally shattering <It's>, his, <laughs> his shoulder bone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's so interesting to, again, just more nuance from Steinbeck here. Like, because Adam is a pretty good mind on stuff when it's not his direct interests he doesn't have this kind of utopian illusion about other people's lives you know like he's he seems very grounded when he's commenting on um phenomenon that are outside of like his war for purview. example yeah like when he's in war and he's talking about war and he's like i just never understood why people could just kill people yeah and and he, he's not indoctrinated by the world and yet he seems to be indoctrinated by this idea of romance. Yeah. And and so like he's got this really funny line that really resonated with me because it's not involving him directly where he says, "The proofs that God doesn't exist are very strong, but in lots of people not as strong as the feeling that he does." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and so like that like he seems to be well, I can't remember if he says it or if it's his dad saying it to him or him saying it to his dad or Charles, but it's like a conversation that Adam is having with someone. And, you know, it's like that awareness of the psychological need for a higher power. Yeah. And, you know, like, I was just like, yeah. I mean, because, you know, from like 2010 or 2011 to 2014, probably what I did more than anything was watch YouTube videos of Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Dawkins and other Michael Shermer, like all of these kind of rationalist types who are just piece by piece dismantling theological and uh, creationist type suppositions about the, the construction of the cosmos, right? And, and both empirically and metaphysically. And because I had been raised in a Christian household, these arguments were fascinating to me because I was still born with a brain that cared about that kind of stuff, but had been immersed in the culture and kind of, I guess, spiritual society of of the church and so i 
one major revelation to me that has happened recently in my life is, oh, people don't believe in God because of reasons. Because the reasons are so shaky at best. The arguments of, of, of the empirical arguments, the scientific ones, even the kind of like spiritual ones are open to every door of argument that I just got inundated with, with those uh, guys I mentioned earlier. And so I'm left with like, wow, the logical case against Christianity is so overwhelmingly impressive that there's actually something else going on here. Like there's a completely different form of attachment to this that I am not seeing because of how well constructed I find these arguments to be. And there's such a feeling of kindred spirit to my species when I can read a book written 35 years before I was born with that kind of same insight yeah. where it's like wow like like yeah the proofs are the I guess root, it are the strong are different <laughs> but people will do it anyway and it's because they it's the feeling that they get right and and it's just cool that Adam has enough wherewithal to know that and yet it's like it's like his Blind spots are so blind, and his sightful spots are so sightful. <laughs> you know, it, it's just a great picture because, like, you see these kind of people all the time. They they don't know what they don't know, right? It's the I forget what the quote is, but it's something along the lines of "It's what you don't know that gets you," right? And yeah. we see this with that Adam. great philosopher Donald Rumsfeld, I believe. <laughs> I, the unknown yeah. unknowns. <laughs> yes, that's that great philosopher. <laughs> um, yes, I completely agree. It there. I find so much kinship with him in this book, like going back to what he's saying about people in these brother relationships too, like where you're dealing with, oh, I feel like my brother's loved more by my parents maybe or my sister or whoever it is and thinking about the impact that it has on you as, as a youth. And I feel like he, he brings that out so well, like the, the sins of parents having favoritism and and like loving one child more than the other and how obvious that is to the children and how the parents may not even really know they're making this obvious. It's the same with what you're saying. It's a moment where you look at it and you say, I feel so much kinship with you. Humans aren't really changing. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like there's probably elements of this book that would strike you in a way that they didn't quite strike me because you actually have a brother yeah and i don't yeah, yeah true <laughs> so i don't actually like i have three sisters so i definitely understand what it's like to have siblings but i don't have a brother dynamic in my life so I, that's interesting that you probably but there is a, something I, uh, there's a cool part it's funny with obviously <laughs> if you ever have any family members you realize there's like a terseness that you can have with your family that you won't have with anybody else. And yep. there's, so, yeah. there's, well, it's an unbelievably polite way to put it, but there's a terseness between Charles and Adam. Oh. <laughs> there's like, the, they don't just fight even like brothers. They fight like like cats and dogs. Like, there's like a, enemies. Yeah, like enemies, exactly. Well, I mean, considering even what Charles does to Adam at one point in the book, almost killing him, like, it's impressive they still hang out. Have any him. relationship yeah, yeah. afterwards, yeah. Yeah, how does Adam survive that again? Like, he just... So, well, he... Charles kind of beats the crap out of him and just leaves him there. But then Charles does return with a hatchet. But in the meantime, Adam's kind of rolled away and, and hiding. And when he sees, and at this point, Charles is drunk, returns to the hatchet, doesn't find him, leaves. So that's kind of how he survives. And then he goes home. But I can't imagine, like in my own life, I can't imagine that happening with a sibling. But it is amazing to see how much he makes you feel it happen. 
in that moment and to engage with the idea of like well charles hatred is stemming from a deep deep envy of Adam. exactly with the love that he feels that adam is getting that he's not getting which i mean and this is so clearly a parallel to cain and abel it's not even funny right like that's exactly what the Cain and Abel story, and I would say the Cain and Abel story is the theme of this book. Like, yeah. even, like you said, the Garden of Eden, but it's also what does sin do to us, right? Like what does the the wrongs that we commit to mm-hmm. others, how does it impact yes, the world? Yes, definitely. <laughs> the initials are the same twice. Like there's a Charles and an Adam scenario and then there's later in the book the Cal and Aaron, which are both C and A names, Cain <laughs> yeah. and Abel. That's a much more thoroughgoing theme of the book is that brother rivalry and the kind of anger of one brother to another that doesn't seem to deserve that anger but But that non-deserving also almost is what the thing that brings it on more and i think it uh it's it's cool because he kind of makes us ask questions like he's like is it because charles was born this way and this is his nature is it because he wasn't loved properly and he was nurtured in a way that made him feel envy? Is it because he made the choice to continue to feel that envy and to thrive yeah. on it? And actually, I think, I mean, the whole argument that Steinmack's making in this book is that you may, you can choose. Yeah. That choice is possible. Yeah. I think one of the other, not the, like the non Cain and Abel, but Garden of Eden story that's present here that's really interesting is kind of, it's kind of like Adam is living in a world without he has the knowledge of good but not evil and he because of that he gets just raked over the coals which is I'm not quite sure how to make of that like Kathy is the Eve type character but she doesn't possess any of the characteristics of Eve that seem to be present before the serpent comes kind of thing or after like it's much more like she's the serpent than eve like that's the character she much more represents but steinbeck also gives her kind of an out because he's basically like something's broken in her she's not something is mentally broken where she can't feel like well isn't there something broken in satan yeah well I, I, that's a whole theological <laughs> argument I don't really want to have. But. Yeah, no, no, I know. But I mean, like, it's just interesting. Yeah, like, it, it definitely, the most sympathetic reading of Kathy is that she is just a psychopath, and she didn't choose to be a psychopath. She was just born that's with just that how she is. Yeah. psychopathic yeah. brain. And the kind of, like, uplifting message of this book is choice, which appears to be the thing that Kathy is incapable of. Yeah, like, to Which choose, is so sad. To choose a moral good. Yeah. Like, she's obviously very capable of making basic human choices and, and is very calculated at making those choices and actually more efficient at making those choices than most of the other characters. <laughs> if you don't have to worry about other people, it's yeah. really easy to get yeah. your way through life. Yeah, exactly. But it's when the choices conflict with the well-being of others that she seems completely devoid of, of moral conscience. Yeah. It just seems weird to her that that would even be something in the formula. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Why would? What are you talking about? Like, I'd have to. <laughs> why? Why should I care about? Take into consideration the well-being of others. And she seems to have this incredibly vindictive and hateful revenge. She's desirous of revenge whenever anyone slights her. Her own parents, who've raised her, who've taken care of, she burns to death because of one incident. Like it's it's kind of the complete opposite of Adam, mm-hmm. right? Adam seems to forgive 
Charles to some degree at least until Kathy kind of separates them, but forgives even for almost beating him to death and wanting to kill him. Mm-hmm. And yet Kathy for the for a well, like I mean, she got whipped. So, but for a slight that is much less than what Adam has forgiven, she kills them. Yeah, and like not just kills them, not in a, in a rage calculates it for months. Oh, well, she kills a number of people in this yes, book. Yes, well, Or, or like, of... brings about a circumstance of scenarios that are what are causing the deaths of these people. So even if, like, she doesn't drive the dagger into their heart, she's responsible for the confluence of events that yeah, lead to it. Exactly. But she, she is... For not, it's weird to say, because I can't really think of a... There's like a handful of reasons why you would kill someone justifiably, and none of these even come close. No, well, and <laughs> like she's just mad at someone. There's and that she's scene like, Let's where get him. she's talking to Adam. Right, Adam goes and meets her at the whorehouse, and she's and she's like, he's like, "What do you want?" And she's like, "I want to make enough money and move to Boston and like find a man if he's still alive and just destroy him." And that's the one that beat her. Like her her whole psyche is a revenge, and and then she's like, "And then maybe I'll destroy some other men." It's just like she just wants to destroy people. And she's she even the way she talks about people is very much their scum. She calls all her clients like these fat worms. She doesn't see humanity. She's just like perma disgusted with yeah. the species she's a part of. Exactly. And exactly. if this book wasn't so deep, she'd almost be laughable in, in like she's like a she's very corny. But but it's not corny because she's so terrible. Like, she's so mean and evil. So it's not corny because corny is much more, like, goofy or silly. But she's the same the whole book. Yeah. And, and on top of that, because she's this way, it's unbelievable to me as a reader that Adam can't pick up on any of this. Yeah. Like every he- other character knows this within four seconds of talking to her, and he's... Just well, totally you know, destitute. F- Faye doesn't, and like she can just dis- she seems to be able to right. deceive yeah, that's true. a number of characters, including her parents. But way. I think it seems to me more that it's not so much that she fools other people; it's that she just puts a deep, like, like a weird fear into them of crossing her because they kind of know that she's willing to go to darker places than they are. Yeah, yeah, I'd, and she you know, seems she's constantly sowing distrust among people, and she has like got rumor mills under control. Like she knows where to place a secret to make it go places, and then manipulate people's hearing of that secret. And she's she's obviously figured out on some deep level. She's unbelievably clinical. Oh yeah, and her her sociological understanding of of group dynamics and things like that seems to be way above the average, right? But you're right, she. But she's completely missing, I guess, the things that bring joy and happiness in life. And we see that because I think really her opposite in the book is Samuel. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Samuel is kind of the rock of this book. Well, I think that because Samuel dies approximately halfway to two-thirds of the way through the book. I think it's about two-thirds of the way through, yeah. And so I would say... Like the character who's the rock of the book transitions from Samuel to Lee yeah. because they are the most similar to each other, which again I love because Samuel is this, you know, first generation Irish 
farmer and Lee is a Chinese manservant, basically. And the way that... One of the things that I notice about great thinkers in history, and I include great novelists as great thinkers in history, is that there appears to be a humanistic undertone to all of their work where it doesn't fucking matter where you're from. The things that are the deepest revelations of the human psyche are noticeable from people from anywhere. So it doesn't matter that Lee is from China and Samuel is from Ireland. They can talk about the same things because of whatever superficial difference they have of things like nationality or even cultural heritage do end up getting dwarfed by the human similarities that we share because of our species. And again, Steinbeck is just another great example. Well, of we that. see this with like Mark Twain and Huck Finn, right? We see, yeah, I completely yeah. agree. And there is a push towards that humanization, mm-hmm. right? He specifically has scenes where Samuel and Lee are talking, and and Samuel's like, you know what? I never understood. I lost my Irish accent like a few years after being here, but all of you Chinese guys speak in this. They call it pigeon. Pigeon. I thought it was like pigeon. Well, maybe it's pigeon. 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 I, I think yeah. it's pronunciation. Okay, it's pigeon. And then he just starts talking normally in perfect English to him, and he's like, yeah, but, I mean, it's basically because of systemic racism. <laughs> Def- definitely. Like, yeah. how, because Lee can speak perfect English without an accent, but if he had, if he did that, it would just weird people out too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, so, like, the, the more, the everyday American in, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century America is just racist enough <laughs> that they can't, even they can't handle a China speak, they just, Chinese guy yeah, speaking normally. They can't handle a non-accented guy who looks Chinese. <laughs> How far we've come, eh? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but on that note, with the humanism, he specifically takes this as a theme that he's drawing in his great epic. It's obvious what he's trying to do here. He wants us to realize the insanity of, of not desiring to understand one another. Yeah. And I think he ties that in really well with um, Lee spending a decade thinking about the Cain and Abel story. Yeah. And so the same thread runs through both Samuel and Lee throughout the book, and it is the thread that is the counterbalance to Kathy, like you said. But it's also the thing that is the like intellectual uplifting that, it's hard to explain, but it's the thing that when you come across it, it grabs one part of you and pulls all of you up. Yeah. Upwards in some way. Like maybe it grabs your intellect, but as it's pulling up your intellect, it's doing it in such a way that's also pulling up your emotions and your spiritual engagement with the world and your empathy, your, your, empathy, your ethical framework. Or like with Samuel, he could he can even be humorous in such a manner that your entire constitution is being raised, not just your the laughing center of your brain, right? So th- this is what's so cool, I think, about Samuel and Lee is that when they affect one thing, they're actually benefiting everything about you because of how unbelievably thoughtful and wholesome they are in the way that they do it. And so they just kind of, well, the cheapest but most easiest words are very inspiring. And they are, for me personally, all the more inspiring because it's not really what they're trying to do. They're not like out there trying to inspire anyone. It just kind of radiates from their uh, interactions with the world. And Samuel especially, he's very gregarious. He, <laughs> I like, I, one of the things I wrote down is that he wants to be loved rather than feared. Like his goal is to be, well, it's, it's not exactly articulated goal that he has, but his passive goal appears to be 
adored and enjoyed much more than being terrified because like he's a father of nine kids and his wife is <laughs> all she wants is to be feared yeah. because that's what the good lord wants of her right well she she calls it the weakness in samuel right yeah, the weakness yeah. is his yeah, desire to be loved her inflexibility is his flexibility right and so what samuel reminds me of is this there's a great essay by emerson called the oversoul and there's i think some ideas that this is one of the earlier progenitors of Nietzsche's idea of the Superman. But I like Emerson's take a lot more because it's a lot less elitist, where this idea of the oversoul is this person who is so engaging with the world and and enjoys it, but doesn't pay much attention to minor or unimportant cultural or social phenomenon. So they often seem kind of out of the loop with the goings on but then if as soon as you start engaging them they're able to go down any path in a really exciting way but still like when you think you're at the end they've got more to go they can go farther than you think and they go farther than you can and yet while they go farther they don't belittle you or make you feel stupid they feel like they're taking you along yes because they actually love it like in the best way possible for samuel it's almost like the other people aren't there because they are inspiring in him a new idea, which is like just taking him on to new heights. And and once he kind of looks around and says, oh, okay, I need to bring everyone with me too. I'll crack a joke. I'll make it, oh, you're actually still a part of this thing that we're doing. But yeah, to me, Samuel is the oversoul of this. And that's what is inspiring to Adam too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And yet he's so willing to listen and he's so good at listening that like, there's that scene where Adam is driving back to his house with him, where Adam's basically just spilling his whole life story. And Adam's like, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. And he's like, well, maybe it's because I want to listen. Maybe it's because I care. And and one of the things he says that I love is I eat stories like grapes. Yeah. Oh, it's such a beautiful imagery, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I just love stories, people's stories. It brings more richness. To his own life yeah. and to everyone else's. Yeah, because yeah. people like to talk, obviously. And Samuel ta- likes to talk too, but he, because like you said, he likes to listen. It's so symbiotic, the way that he interacts with people. And uh, he's also very Socratic, I would say too, in that he, um, there's, there's like a, there's a few parts of the book where Steinbeck notes how whenever Samuel has a task or an activity that he can't do, or it's just a little bit beyond his ken, he doesn't get angry. He just kind of smiles about it because he's like aware of his own limitations. And that's not something like, it's like inevitable. Like it's inevitable that there's going to be so many things that I don't know or can't do. And so when he comes across one, it's well, on one sense, it's just a pure learning experience for Samuel. And he enjoys that. But I think I think one of the things that's cool about Samuel too is that he likes those moments where he has a mild failure because it's a good reminder of that perpetual need to keep trying to get new stuff or not new stuff like in the but no, new no, not in the materialistic sense not but. but new ways of being aware of how you just don't can never even come close to having anything and that psychological reminder like hey yeah you <laughs> you can't actually uh this horse has a particular hoof that you've never seen or like your shoes don't fit or whatever and you got to do something a little different and you messed up sorry and and samuel seems to revel in those little mistakes that he makes that i think is very charming but also like 
inspiring again. Yeah, and one of the things I love most about it is he has learned and accepted his lot in life. And his lot in life is that he loves learning, that he loves thinking and exploring ideas, but exploring physical ideas too, like the valley around him, knowledge of the valley, how to build things. But he's not striving for some... Well, he even talks about it, like the choice of greatness. Do you want to be great or not, right? Uh, And he feels that his son, Tom, has been struggling with that all his life. But with both Lee and Samuel, they are probably the most noble and beautiful characters in the book who have, like you said, these oversouls. But they're not the really successful guys. They are just these beautiful souls who bring life. But that has also never been their ambition. Yes. Right? But, But I take... The example of when I think his name is Lucas, but I might have his name wrong, when he's taking Adam to the Hamilton's farm for the very first time, and he gets kind of angry, and he's like, you know, you might think that Samuel was a little weird, a little eccentric, but he's a good man, and he's raised a good family, and it's like, there's this loyalty and protection of this gem of a human being that they have in their midst, in their community, that is bringing so much life to all of them, and yet... Not, you know, by the, let's say, the world standards of success. And everyone kind of knows that. But the beauty of it is, Samuel knows it too. Mm -hmm. And he's not shying away from it. He's not like, well, actually, I am a great success. Or the world, you know, dealt me a bad hand. You never get that from him. Yeah, no. What what you get is, I love life. I love learning. I take joy in things. The most succinct description in the narrative that Steinbeck gives of Samuel is that he loved a celebration of the human soul. Yes. Like that was what his motivation was. And of course, if that's what your motivation is, other people can't help but see you as someone that they respect and look up to and are excited to see because everything you do is motivated at probably at least as philosophically rigorous as you could put it you were motivated to help others at the deepest levels. And so, you know, throwing aside <laughs> semantic, what does that meanness? That's what Samuel's goal is. And again, I think maybe the biggest feature of this is that Samuel, though he is uh, resplendent with joy and happiness, he doesn't lie either, though, no. too, right? There's a yeah. line. There's a line in the book where he says... There is more beauty in the truth, even if it is a dreadful beauty. Yeah. And again, I ha- I can't help but think that Steinbeck must have been in, uh, deep into Emerson because Emerson has a similar line in his essay where he's in uh, self-reliance where he says, I stand here for humanity and though I would make it kind, I would make it true. Basically saying I'd love to be nice if my kindness is in tension with the truth, I have to pick the truth because that's actually going to be much more important to you in the long run well and there's that one section in, in the whole book where he just talks about like what he stands for like steinbeck just goes into this what do i believe in and it's protecting this idea of the glory uh, uh, the glory of the human soul right where it where it suddenly comes alive and it turns on and we've all seen this in people where they go from not ha- having a lot of energy kind of obviously glum to like on fire it's because something gives them passion something gives them meaning and he's like if there's anything i want to protect in all of humanity, it's that one thing. Yes. Oh, don't. And, 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 he, sure. and he attaches that to choice. 
and says that choice is what allows you to do that. And and it's funny because he's saying this about Adam as he's, you know, come on fire for um, Kathy and like come alive and, and has ambitions and dreams and he never had any of these things and now he suddenly has all of them, right? And I think it's very telling that it's in that moment that Steinpack praises that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is delusion. We just called it delusion, right? But yeah. it brought Adam alive. Yeah. And it's these choices we make of the things that are going to make us come alive mm-hmm. that I think will impact. But, I mean, according to Steinbeck, that's the most important yeah. thing to protecting humans. And I think that's what you're saying about what Emerson's saying. Like, yeah. Where, where the moment you go down the path of even a mild deceit, you have undermined the very kindness you have even purported in the first place. That's a hard way to be. And I think it's not that Samuel gets away with it because it's part of why he's actually able to maintain his oversoul nature is because he doesn't let those bad, he doesn't let those lies seep in. And he even says it, like he uses the term, even if it's a dreadful beauty, the truth is better. Even if, Adam, you have to know that this woman (laughs) probably will try to kill you, and that might be dreadful to you, me telling you that is much more important than me pandering to your delusion about her. and. And like that's the the terrible truth, right? Is that there's times where we the people we love are deluded, and is it the most loving thing to do to be kind, or is it the most loving thing to do to be honest? Uh, and and we see this in that moment where Samuel tells Adam, "Your wife is running a whorehouse." Yeah, and he's not sure what this is going to do to Adam, but he knows something has to be done, and he knows he's going to die, so he's he's taking that leap into doing the truthful thing right that will hurt which very interestingly is the thing that adam seems to not be able to do to his own sons yes. later yes right he, he can't do this it. is exactly so i think it's probably after samuel has died and lee is talking to adam about because what happened was Adam had told his sons that their mom had died in childbirth, I believe. And so they both are... And that she'd been buried across the country back right, in New England. Yeah. Yeah. So when we kind of come back to the story after a lot of what's happened, the boys are 11. Kathy, though said his dad, is actually living not too far from their farmhouse in Salinas, running a whorehouse. And Adam and Lee are having a conversation about this. And Lee says... If they ever found out the lie, the true things would suffer. And so that's like, you know, and we on, see, on the danger of not telling the hard truth, where Lee says to Adam, no, like, you need to do what Samuel did to you, to your sons. You need to be able to tell your sons, no, actually, your mom's not dead. <laughs> She's a psychopathic <laughs> mistress at a bordello. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he doesn't, and we see the consequences. Yes. Right? And that's the... And they're tragic. Lies. But that's why Lee is saying that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Where if you tell the lie, if if the lie ever comes out, the true things will suffer. And that's true because that isn't just like, if I tell you, David, 10 things, nine are true and one is a lie, and you find out the one is a lie, and you are just now suspicious of all those other things, it doesn't even matter how true or not they are, right? 
even, yeah, even if you told me that nine and one, I'd yeah. still be like, hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not the lie. Maybe he's like, I like that's, other that's a drastic point, but it's much, it, it, I think in life, it's a lot more subtle than that, where you find out a lie discovered by someone you know. It could be something as simple as like you're with a friend and they say, that they were doing that that someone else calls them and they're like doing something else when they're not and you're just like everything now is a little bit undermined because of that and that's what happens and it's lee as it were carrying samuel's torch and of course like this is not a surprise in the narrative because steinbeck in the book tells us how much lee and samuel loved talking to each other yeah and enjoyed each other's company and just would talk of ideas all the time well and i think it's interesting because there seems to be a theme of lies throughout the entire book like we we see at the very beginning uh, cyrus is telling lies about his military service and then kathy's constantly telling lies and charles is kind of telling lies and then adam adam's one of the few characters throughout the book that doesn't until that moment and yeah he's it's like lying his, to his son it's one of his few virtues at, till, at <laughs> yeah, this point until that moment yeah honesty yeah um so then there's just a another thing about lee that i want to just bring up right now and because i think the rest of it will tie into the stuff with the kids one of the things that lee has a cool thing that he says he i don't know there's like a part of the book where he swears around the boys and he says, or no, it was, it was Adam. He swears at Adam or two around Adam. And he says, I'm not profane by accident. <laughs> yeah. Where, again, it reminds me of that little throwaway but funny line where um, a gentleman is only ever rude on purpose. <laughs> so that, <laughs> That's a great um, line. And so I just wrote down, self-aware people don't do a faux pas for no reason. Everything is for a point. And that is... I, I like that about Lee too. Like he's so self-aware that even when if he swears, it's actually for a really meaningful scenario or a meaningful point, which is to in the part of the book where he does it, it's to shake Adam out of a kind of a stupor or a weird way of thinking about something that he's just like it, Lee is thinking about. Adam. I'm like, you are so fucking crazy, and I need to, I need to do something out of my normal, ordinary character to, well, you make you realize. Samuel that. has to do that too. He, he punches Adam to get him out of his stupor, just so he'll name his own children. Yes, like. <laughs> yes, yeah, because Samuel helps deliver them. Yeah, and I like that. Like how I do my best to reserve my insults till the moment where I a hundred percent mean them. because then if i use the fork in my tongue loosely all it's doing is unnecessarily hurting everybody including myself but the moment i think that a (laughs) invective is deserved is the moment i will use it (laughs) and you know that's just i think kind of the little thing that lee is getting at with that line yeah i like that and so then the last big cohort of main characters in this book is cal and aaron and their friend abra or abra but i call her abra in my mind uh who is 
a friend like she her parents know adam i think they're kind of they end up at their house after a rainstorm and like they need to park at their house because the rainstorm but then isn't her dad like he's an official of some sort yeah yeah he's in local government yeah in california and and abra is the same age as cal and aaron so they become friends and start hanging out all the time and they're basically a trifecta and then of course jealousy and envy ensues <laughs> because abra always seems much more attached to aaron yeah and cal, cal obviously it's interesting because there's that scene that describes cal uh where he's fighting against himself and as soon as someone likes aaron more he immediately tries to like hurt them and the the purpose of that is because he knows his father loves Aaron Moore and he knows people like Aaron Moore and so his revenge for that is at least at the at the beginning when they first meet Abra his revenge for that is to hurt them and we see that with the rabbit like yeah Aaron's proud of having killed this rabbit and he wants to give it to Abra and he goes to wrap it up and then Cal's just talking to Abra and saying there's something gross gonna be gross in the box and she throws it out the window and that just breaks Aaron's heart as he's watching them go down the road there is a dark stain of Kathy in Cal's heart. Yes. Isn't there? Right. But, 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 and that brings us back to the question is it biological or is it that Adam has obviously loved Aaron more? Well, yes. Definitely. There is a dark side of favoritism going on with Cal and Aaron through Adam. Although at that point in the book, Adam's not really engaged with them at all, hardly, and it's only been Lee. And from my impression of the book, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, I think Lee likes Cal more. Well, he <laughs> perhaps sees more potential because there's more there's more chaos in Cal. There's more order in Aaron, and there's more and and like the order is with Aaron, it goes way too far, where he became he kind of becomes not a robot, but uh, you know, like we mentioned before, just well, I so think with attached. anyone when you become when you become very ideological, when when your whole world is based on certain premises and you begin to dictate every encounter you have through the lens of that thing, it narrows you. It, it has to narrow you. Mm-hmm. And we see that narrowing with Aaron in this book. He becomes so obsessed with holiness and, and living a upright life. And this is the way you should live. Very much like Samuel's wife. Yeah. Not not to the degree that she takes it in terms of thou shalt, thou shalt not. But he simplifies what constitutes like a good life to the degree where just no one can match those standards. Yeah. And, and anyone who isn't matching them is immediately mm-hmm. lower. So, yeah. I mean, Aaron really nicely, especially near the end of the book as he gets older, represent, nicely represents the tyranny of order the mental tyranny of order that is so far beyond human interaction that you just kind of alienate everyone uh but cal cal has a weird chaos to him that i think lee is tapping into after samuel dies lee is the only character left in the book who has kind of the the whole picture he knows about kathy he knows about even a little bit with Adams told him about his life before California. He, so he's got just, he's got the most context of any character left in the book that he knows about the potential darkness that Cal could be because of what his mom was. Right. But he still sees enough 
of not Kathy that he's like, well, I don't want to, I couldn't stand standing by and letting Cal just annihilate himself and others without trying to help him realize that he can choose to not do that. Well, it's the choice here that's so important, right? Because we've seen throughout the course of this book and we encounter it when Samuel and Adam and Lee have a conversation about the Cain and Abel story. They have an initial conversation about it when they're thinking of naming the two boys and then they have another conversation about it before they die. Sorry, before Samuel dies. And we get the impression that Lee has been studying this story for a long time and the because he sees so much truth and human truth in this story. It, it's kind of like a, it is Steinbeck's vision of a Jordan Peterson-like moment where whether they believe there's truth... and it, none Maybe of the, it's Jordan Peterson having a Steinbeck-like yeah, moment. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. Good point, Luke. But uh, I think my... my my point in that is that none of them seem to believe in the uh, authenticity of scripture, right? None of them seem right. to think that it's that it's the total authority, right? But they all see wisdom in it, and then they're seeking this wisdom. But Lee, most of all, is seeking this wisdom from this passage. And the wisdom he seems to get is this, thou mayest, thou yes. mayest not sin. Yeah. And we'll get to that later, but I think it's very important that that's what he sees in Cal. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the characters... Because even book, though Cal dust sin... Yes. All the time. Yes, yes. He has the potential to not, not do sin. that. Yes, exactly. And uh, and I think that Lee's seeing that in Cal and the conversations that Lee has with Cal about guilt, about failure, about sin, these things don't define you. They aren't who you are. You still get to choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, as a kind of aside, I guess... I so relate to that. Again, probably this is just another reason why I like this book is that there's so much vitally that I relate to in it where the Cain and Abel story, again, as a metaphor, has basically floored me as an idea. Because the problem, not problem, (laughs) the thing is that when I grew up, all of these Bible stories, not just Cain and Abel, all of them, were taught to me like, in a similar way that you would teach a young person about that the Berlin Wall fell in pure history. Pure, yeah, it's a historical fact. The Berlin Wall fell in the Garden of Eden it was approximately 6,000 years ago. Genghis Khan lived, pro- you know, yeah. and, and covered all the Mongol territory. And uh, also Noah built the Sark. That. So it's like there's no differentiation between the stories in the Bible and the stories in historical textbooks and so when you have a mental state that is associating these stories from the bible as historical fact they don't they don't vitiate you in a way that they do once you start to think of them as psychological stories so i you know i sat through 18 years of what would you call it biblical scholar like biblical scholasticism and scholarship where just like it just was ingested without too much excitement. <laughs> it's like okay, whatever. Yeah. As soon as I hear Jordan Peterson giving psychological takes on these stories, I am floored. I am watching two and a half hour lectures on YouTube without flinching because of the framing. The framing is different, right? And that's what I think is so speaking to me about East of Eden, the book as a whole, 
is that, okay, it, it's kind of, I guess, well, especially because it was written in the 50s. It's the first, like, cultural artifact that I ever came across, because I read it for the first time when I was a teenager. It's the first cultural artifact I ever came across where I was like, oh, you can think about these things so different than I ever was encouraged to think about them in my life. Like, you can think about these as stories, like uh, <laughs> Adam from Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve and Han Solo and Princess Leia, right? And when you put it into that realm, and I have theories on the deepness of psycholo- things that are psychologically vitiating being what are actually the deepest levels of attachment to anything. But that aside, it was just like this book, again what we're saying is so it's like the first thing that ever did that for me yeah that's interesting because for me this book was like a because i've always kind of felt that way that there was just these deeper wisdoms and truths and i've we both loved stories for so long and i think i always took it more as the story than the history the facts right you've you've always been more interested in facts and and figuring out truth and i was always more interested in narrative and and understand science was my favorite subject in high school exactly whereas for me i've just always loved storytelling and finding meaning in stories and connecting meaning in stories and so for me steinbeck the first time i read it was just like oh yeah that's a really cool insight on an old story but i think it's so easy to fall into that trap of because you feel that a story gives you a sense of psychological insight that you suddenly want to attach it to facts. And I think it's important to make the distinction that facts and feelings are not the same thing, but one is not more valuable to human happiness than the other necessarily. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, okay. I won't argue let, too let me, much let, with no, you. No, let me, let, me, let me hash it out a little bit more. So what I mean by that is let's take the realization that choice exists. There's lots of arguments from a factual standpoint that could say there is no choice, biological predestination, et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps the belief that there's choice can lead to better outcomes in individuals. Yes. I, I There's a few philosophical distinctions to be made about the word choice and belief, et cetera. It's boring, so I won't do it. Again, I think that the free will discussion is not as well framed as I would like it because I think the borders of what would count as a free choice, though not self-generated, are there's enough randomness in the system that the choices matter in a sense that is beyond just saying it matters. But that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Yeah. Because with... Cain and Abel undertones. It's exciting to me. Like the psych, the, the the real meaning of what I'm trying to say is that the psychological analysis, like the 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 presenting the story as metaphor, gives me an excitement about it that telling it as fact never could. The downside was it is presented as fact in many oh many no, many no, many circles no, for sure so until the concession is made i will campaign for the necessity of the factual truth about this story until there's nobody else telling saying that it's historical fact right but in the meantime i can very much appreciate the psychology of it and how i actually think 
the feeling that I get from the psychology of the story is just actually what we mean when we say metaphysics. Yes. Yes. Because I don't actually think there's... There is metaphysics. Metaphysics. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So there's just a couple of things I wanted to say about, again, this choice thing. So Cal and Abra, they have the blood of their parents, (laughs) a whore and a thief. So it's like part of their story, Cal and, and Abra, is overcoming vestigial evils in their DNA to still be good. Because I think Abra's dad turns out to be a thief... Or like he's stealing from the well, public he's trust. From the army, yeah. yeah, from the yeah. yeah, and but they both are able to do it. Not they're only able to do it because they face that. They don't run from it. They don't hide from their hard truth that they have to face to overcome to still be good in the sense that we're using it. Right? It's like again, I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast about. One of my favorite things that George Orwell ever said about himself was that he thinks the edge he had on other people wasn't intellectual or narrative or literary, but is that he had the power to face unpleasant facts without running away. And what's so cool is that both Cal and Abra, though they have their own weird (laughs) relationships with each other, they're both able to look at the really dark disgusting things in their family and i think it's because they're able to face those things that they're able to transcend them in a way that aaron can't well how can you overcome something if you're not willing to admit it even exists that's what aaron can't yeah aaron can't handle the fact that his mom's a whore that actually is a truth that shatters him and it doesn't shatter cal and it's because cal has that same part of charles that can wrestle with the darkness because they can wrestle with the darkness in themselves. They're able to wrestle with the darkness in the world. And that's something that Adam never really was able to do. And it translates into Aaron is that neither of them are ever really able to see that darkness in themselves that they can become more resilient at or like vaccinate themselves <laughs> throughout their life. So that when it comes to them, they're able to know what it is and deal with it because both Adam and Aaron crumble and shatter when the darkness comes their way yeah it seems to me that like if we look at it at the beginning there's kind of a adam kind of just resolves to not really care about anything we see him become a tramp we see him just kind of floating through life up to about 37 because he just his way of dealing with evil it even talks about him on the chain gangs right and he just goes into himself and he becomes nothing and he becomes unnoticeable and he doesn't react to things and he just becomes this very quiet, unknown thing. And that, that's definitely a way that some people deal with evil. They just shrink from it. They just, they become smaller and smaller and they don't confront it and they don't confront it in themselves or others and they just bear it, right? And we see, I, I mean, I think you need a little bit of that edge in you to even be able to confront it mm-hmm. and it seems to me that adam and aaron don't have that evil let's call it an evil edge in them like they don't have a um a compulsion towards selfishness to the same degree that others do although arguably aaron's pretty selfish in his decisions so it's so hard for them to comprehend that in others but if you have it then you can confront it yeah like, i guess they, the question is do, do they have it can they, they confront both, it well they both don't heed other people who care about them's warnings in a way that's what's interesting 
is that Cal does heed Lee's ideas. It might be years later, and it might be in really winding, serpentine ways, but they're always there seems to be a part of Lee that sticks in Cal's head later on where he's he's still kind of mildly course corrected because he knows about that and it it just doesn't seem like Aaron or Adam are able to do that it, but it's also because they don't choose to I don't know. Like it just doesn't. Like it does feel like Cal chooses. Yeah. To no, to I face I, those. I, I agree, and I, I don't think. Although Adam kind of like fluctuates between trying to choose and then just going back to where he was. Trying to choose, going back to where he there was. are a few parts in the book though where Cal pulls the trigger yeah. on choices. Yes, exactly. That it just feels like his brother and his dad don't. And sometimes he pulls the trigger on bad choices. Like he pulls the trigger when the fifteen thousand dollars is burned. He pulls the trigger on. I'm gonna take. Aaron to see his mother and because he knows that's going to have a massively bad impact on him yeah well he wants well he wants revenge well that <laughs> it's it, yeah it's a drug too and like that revenge drug is motivating to Cal a lot especially when he's younger well one of the things that I find fascinating is there's various vices in life and why would you pick a vice that gives you nothing back and, like, in the case of Envy, all it does is destroy you and make you a more bitter and horrible Whereas, person. Whereas, like, you might as well smoke so you can get cancer back. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it gives you that high for the But can't have carcinogen <laughs> without sin. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, yes, I know what yes. you mean. Well, I'm, I'm just saying at least certain sins, maybe they're more they're destructive or vices. I prefer to call them vices. Maybe they're also destructive. But envy seems like a particularly destructive vice because it only seems to take, and I'm, I can't see what it gives. All it does is make you unhappy. It makes you hate other people, and it doesn't actually give you any sort of benefit, I guess I would say, except mm-hmm. for maybe some twisted form of pleasure. I think that Cal fighting with that and battling with that in his own mentality throughout the book is what makes his good choices more meaningful. Yes. Yes. Because the, like, well, okay. Like literally speaking, Adam and Aaron make lots of choices. Like you mentioned before, like world choices, but neither of them develop any sort of morass of their own complicated worldview. Like both Adam and Aaron's worldviews are very uncomplicated to them. And thus it is a total shock. They're too brittle. They're they're so brittle because of their naivety. Yeah, naivety and like I'm sure you've probably heard of this idea before called anti fragile. Yes. Right? Yeah. Whereas because both Adam and Aaron don't wrestle they don't throw their ideas into the ring to wrestle with the world at any point. They don't, they stay fragile. They don't gain any strength. They don't become anti-fragile. And I think Cal's anti-fragileness comes from the fact that he throws his worldview out there into reality. And sometimes it really it fucks him up and it fucks up Aaron and just the people around him. But those instances are what give him 
kind of this more contextualized way of seeing things when he does have to make other decisions later, which are like, he makes some decisions that are really good for other people and himself. And he does kind of, he ends up not going the Kathy route, which he could like, that's the, or the Charles route. Yeah. That's the potential promise of the book is that Cal is teetering between if we're going to say on the normative good side of like the Adam and the Lee and the Samuel, and he's, he's, so he's tottering between that side and then the Kathy and the Charles side on the more on the bad side of the scale. And I think that he succeeds in where Aaron fails because he actually has failed so much more than Aaron did before that, because he actually put himself out there to try. Whereas Aaron, you know, kind of cliche did the ivory tower route but because of that aaron was never confronted with anything that made him have to become stronger whereas cal was all the time cal even like pay for aaron's schooling he did a lot for the family and he was he was always thinking of others and actually interestingly enough aaron's not thinking of others he's not caring about others he doesn't seem to really value others He's just focused on his his you know ideal unless they fit into his like weird metaphysical world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, isn't that interesting? That uh, really, though, Cal is obviously the more empirically damaged one. He's yeah. also the one with, like you said, more potential. Mm-hmm. And I think Lee sees that. Just a final little thing with Abra. So I would say probably my second favorite line from the book or little phrase is something that Lee says. I can't remember who he's talking to. But Lee says, you know, of the millions of nuggets of wisdom gold that Lee gives in this book, he says, I believe a strong woman to be stronger than a man, especially if she has love in her heart. I guess a loving woman is indestructible. And that so knocked me over because of the extremely integral loving women that I've known in my life, our mothers for sure, but extended family and just other people around. And then what's again so narratively great is that several a couple hundred pages later in the book that's actually who i think abra comes to represent is the staunch loving and caring caring part of the feminine and she has love in her heart and i think that we have mentioned this before with kind of the wonder woman and the um jasmine um from aladdin where because and then abra in this because she has a deep love in her heart, first for Aaron and then for Cal, is that there is, um, there's like nothing she can't do kind of thing. Like she has like an, an eternal motivation that is deeper than any obstacle could be. And yet again, like if you read this book, Aber don't take no shit. She is about as strong a person that one could be mentally. And yet, this kind of like ability to understand that <laughs> just saying fuck you to everyone isn't actually going to make you happier and being a bit vulnerable and having love in your heart is actually probably the thing that's going to give you more joy bring more humor into your days bring more liveliness and revelry and good times and all the while knowing that anything untoward happens, you've got your own back because you've got 
a lack of insecurity based on the fact that you know how to love. And then throwing that into less abstract forms where Lee says that he thinks, you know, a, a strong woman who can do that is actually stronger than a man because of how deep that runs. And I just, I don't know. Abra seems to be indestructible in a way that there isn't really any, certainly no other female character in the book that has that well, vitality think, to them. I think we have a really <clears throat> loving view of uh, Lisa. She has her own indestructible strength. And like, despite her complete opposite nature to Samuel, they really love each other. And they really care about each other. Yeah, but she doesn't invite other people into like a space no to kind of be themselves and to bring joy which no she's Abra definitely not does. she's definitely not about joy no Abra is yeah i agree with that and so maybe it can just be left as a meditation but the moment you can find <laughs> a woman <laughs> with love in her heart that's probably where you want to stay yes yeah i, I would I say. agree with that and so then Maybe we can just have a few... There's a few little other things that random characters said throughout the book that I thought I'd throw out there to you. Okay. Um, so Cyrus, who is Charles and Adam's dad, has a funny line near the beginning of the book where he says, A thing so beautifully illogical as an army can't allow a question to weaken it. The necessity... And so I wrote down, The necessity of propaganda to motivate a mass. Oh, for sure. <laughs> right? I mean, like, I mean, this is a truism, but uh, yes, it's, yeah. again, like, it's just so, these perennial themes in history. I mean, L- think about how illogical armies were back then. They would line up. They would march towards each other. They would just shoot at each other. Like, it's madness. Charge! <laughs> yeah. They're shooting at me, yeah. though. <laughs> Whatever. Do your duty. Do right. your honor. But I also like the point in this statement by... Cyrus, where you can't allow a question to weaken it. So to me, part of the definition, I haven't thought about this enough to know if it's the entire definition, but part of the definition of intellectual integrity is beating a question with an answer, not with an outrage that the question would even be asked. Yes. Well, and and even Steinbeck talks about this earlier on, well, after the quote that you just quoted, where he talks about the most dangerous man or woman to a society is one who questions. And obviously to an army, which is a very rigid institution, questioning people, I mean, it's true. It would limit the efficiency of that organization. But taking away that from the human soul and saying you can't question anymore, that's the really dangerous thing. Well, I mean, it's dangerous in the sense that it leads potentially to really unethical ways of treating individuals who do question. Exa- yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> I think we've seen Putin, lots of examples in history where, where that's the case. Putin doesn't just, well, what's the demographic of people? Putin, at least <laughs> illicitly, doesn't mind killing. It's journalists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's not out there terrorizing farmers <laughs> you <laughs> no. know he doesn't he doesn't like uh, yeah so i just think that it's so um well i mean socrates i would say the great progenitor of western civilization his whole method was questioning because that's how you learn things and so the status quo obviously <laughs> doesn't need to innovate like it's like it's a total 
obvious inverse relationship and this is again if you are interested in that this is something hegel the philosopher wrote a lot about the master-slave relationship and how innovation only ever comes from the bottom because they're the only ones who are motivated to because and then motivation is stemmed from hey this doesn't seem to be working quite right how do we why are we doing it this way kind of thing why why are we doing this why why the why question <laughs> nothing so beautifully illogical as an army can allow for something like <laughs> no, that no they can't allow for why well in the words of uh rudyard kipling or no tennyson ours is not to reason why ours is but to do and die right mm-hmm. olive who is the narrator's mom which i didn't check to see if john steinbeck's real life mother was name was olive but i wouldn't be surprised because i'm pretty sure that samuel and his family is at least very much inspired from steinbeck's yeah, life. well, I mean, all, all great, all literature is auto, autobiographical. So there's a yeah, there's a line about her, where he writes, uh, "This is about Olive. Heaven to her was a nice home ranch inhabited by dead relatives. External realities of a frustrating nature she obliterated by refusing to believe in them. And when one resisted her disbelief, she raged at it." <laughs> so I wrote down folksy small mindedness. <laughs> Well, I think so. I mean, he certainly seems to think it's pretty folksy. Yeah, and I love his uh, story about the plane. Do you, do you remember her riding in the plane? So she's selling all these war bonds, and uh, the the reward she gets is to ride in this plane. But she's like doesn't believe that planes actually work, and she's terrified up there. But she's so worried that you know, in this last moments, this pilot who's inevitably going to crash is going to feel bad in his last moments. That she keeps encouraging him, so he keeps doing crazier and crazier tricks because she's he'll look back and say more, and she'll just give him the thumbs up. <laughs> and I just love—I don't know if this was Steinbeck's mom, but that that little vignette. Yeah, there's so many great vignettes in this book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Another thing that I feel kindred to John Steinbeck is how he must have noticed the gaps in thinking <laughs> that happen. He, like, he, that he happen points to, them out all the time. That happen to people who are committed to a particular worldview, regardless of any evidence one way or the other. So that part where he writes that when one resisted her disbelief, she raged at it. So she doesn't believe, I mean, you could say external realities of a frustrating nature. Let's say your car breaks down and this olive lady sounds like someone's like, well, you know what? We got to do what we got to do. Let's pray about it. And then someone who says, well, that's probably not going to fix the car. Maybe we should see a mechanic. And then she uses that to like be angry at you because you because you're not you're doubting you're doubting her, her what, worldview her, her yeah. worldview right. And so maybe that's a low hanging fruit example, but I think it makes a because like well, I, I would say I have known people in my life who are at that level of small mindedness where they rage at that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not a straw man. To say that it happens, because I've come across people like oh, that. Oh, for sure. And I feel like it was probably much more common <laughs> for John Steinbeck growing up. And so he probably saw it way more. So it's just interesting, again, to read about that thread of the human personality. I want to tie this to another uh, point in the book where he's talking about the valley and the culture in the valley and about education in the valley and how... The farmers' families and the families across the valley liked teachers, and teachers were held in a place of very high regard. But they didn't want their kids learning too much. Because if they learned too much, they might want to become doctors or lawyers, or they would leave the farm, or they wouldn't be there anymore. And it was important that they knew enough to do the things that needed to be done 
but not so much. The things that needed to be done as defined by the parents. <laughs> exactly. And I think it would be fair to say that for the majority of human history, that was the interaction between parents and children. They didn't want their children, the idea of that they think they're better than me. That used to be, I don't think it's the case anymore to the same degree, although I'm sure it is. I, I think parents now prefer to see their children surpass them and succeed them and be, do better than they ever did. Well, I think if a parent is well-adjusted, right. yeah. that would be their aspiration. Right. Okay. No, that's fair. But my point is, we see this where he's talking about it. And I think that way of thinking can be transposed on the faith stuff, right? Where if a child didn't want to think that anymore, that would cause them to feel like, oh, they think they're better than me or they think they know something I don't know. And I just think it's fascinating that he pointed that out about education as well as faith because he does seem to be critiquing the faith stuff or or at least pointing it out and letting us decide what we want to think about it. Yeah, and not subtly satirizing in his prose the most extreme versions of it that might seem fantastic. Yeah. To us yeah. in a modern context, but wouldn't have. And they're not even fantastic to my childhood, which was the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they're fantastic in the world in general right now. I think it's very common. So that was a, a fun. And then the character, like the only character I don't really know what to think about in this book is Kathy. And it's not because she doesn't play a massive role. It, she's probably, she's maybe the most interesting character in the plot of the book because she's kind of she's a motivating force for so many big transitions in the book and really deep realizations of other characters like she kind of is the black hole basically of discovery for a lot of characters in the in the negative sense because it's dark but she says something to adam that i think perfectly encapsulates adam's inability to overcome the evils that come his way until like basically his death. Like it's not until really at like the end of the book spoilers is that Adam dies right at the, it's like the last page of the book is Adam's yeah. death. And so it's not even really until that point where he even is able to have a moment of self-reflection on this kind of stuff where even though Kathy spends so much time in the book being manipulative and sneaky, she also says to him, to his face, I can do anything to you. Any woman can. You are a fool. (laughs) And Adam can't even pay attention to that. After that moment where she says that to him, because he's visiting her after finding out that she's there. Yeah. He does. He See, the problem I have with Adam, and that's entirely true, what she says up to that point, but he seems to get beyond it. He seems to get beyond Kathy to some degree. And then he goes back to her. And it's like a... There's a good proverb, like a dog to its vomit, so a fool to his folly, right? And it seems to me that, that Adam is in some way... <laughs> it's his drug. Yeah. His, fo- his, his fool his is... naivete is his drug. He's a fool to his folly, right? He, he never overcomes that malaise yeah. that he seems to experience. No. And the only thing that ever got him out of the malaise was Kathy. And it's so interesting, too, because... The only parts of the book where it feels like Kathy actually is deriving joy is when she's overtly horrible to someone. Yeah, when she's causing pain. Right. But And like, she's so good at doing it subtly, and she knows that that's kind of how she has to do it 
to get through the vicissitudes of life with all the different types of folks she's going to come across. But she seems to glean the most pleasure out of the moments where she gets to do it in your face to you right now. Although... Like, it's to say the hardest, most cruel thing to you. But she you. only does that when she's drinking. Yes. And I love Interesting. that. Interesting. I love that aspect of her character because she never wants to lose control because she knows as soon as she loses control, the, the, the viper tr- comes out. The true her shows. Now, true her, whatever, but that's the only time that she seems to just be truly vicious and ripping people apart and, and pleasuring in their demise and, and, and talking. Mm-hmm. Her internal monologue becomes external yeah. in those moments. And I think it's a, it's one of my favorite um, literary things that Steinbeck does. It's great. There. It's is, so great. Is, is taking, I forget who said it, but, um, you know, alcohol is a truth serum, right? <laughs> and a lot of the, the true things in our hearts come out when we do that. Yeah. So she's, she's, she's both so interesting and so not interesting. You know, like in some scenes she's black and white evil. And in some scenes she's so, she's just so mean sometimes that it's, like watching a train crash. It gets to a depth that I can't quite comprehend, which to me personally is fascinating. Like when I come against, I've spent a lot of time with humans in my life, okay? I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the majority of personality types and styles and ways of being. So if I come across something that is beyond that, I'm riveted. And so I'm riveted by Kathy because I don't understand her at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, her way of functioning in Which, the world. Which, again, like scientifically, if psychopathy is something that is biologically destined, that's a heartbreaking thing for me. Because the idea that Kathy can't be any other way, again, with the whole theme of this book being about that choice, she never... She's never given one or seems to have one. It just doesn't seem to be a live option for her yeah. in a William James sense, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so... There's a bunch of things that Steinbeck wrote that I love. These are narrative meditations. These aren't in the mouths of any characters in the book. Just there's so many things that he wrote in this book that I loved. So (laughs) we'll do them as fast as we can, but they might get, they're really interesting. Yeah. So on page 12, he writes, men do not trust themselves. And when that happens, there's nothing to do but find a strong man and dangle from his coattails. So this is written in 1952. And I just wrote it on Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> cult leaders leaders of cults it's just human nature right if men if, do not trust themselves yeah. and when that happens there's nothing to do but find a strong man and dangle from his coattails so like that's like on the nose type of like populism that trump represents but it also like at a less uh, <laughs> you know fuck you republican sense i i think about this in like yeah like people who seem overly partisan to me in my personal experience, the overly politically partisan people are the ones who I've never been able to get too far down into much more interesting or complicated topics. Because, again, it's like that thing with Aaron. Like, there's a there's a theme, there's a, there's a thread that runs through all of that uh, where we see with Aaron where, well, those answers are already taken care of by the 
the overarching aegis of this ideology that I'm a part of, or this strong man that I'm following, or like hey, all of your concerns about the complexities of psychology and human relationships and interactions. As soon as we have the right political person in power, all that's going to be taken care of. So you don't even need to worry about us. Why are you even bringing it up? Kind of thing. Where it's like, eh, no. <laughs> well, I think it's it's fairly obvious to anyone who pays attention to these things that humanity seems to have a savior complex, and. I'm not sure exactly why that's the case. I think maybe if we think about ourselves as tribal societies, we we needed someone to, to kind of organize. There needed to be a leader. And so there might be a biological desire right. to have someone to kind of... Because, I mean, responsibility is a hard thing to take on. And particularly in survival moments, you kind of want the guy who's best at surviving to yeah. tell you how to survive. But then on the other hand, I mean, we see cults we see i mean most humans organize themselves based on their beliefs mm -hmm. whether but, that be an atheist or a strident catholic or a you know, <laughs> republican or a democrat most people define themselves by labels yeah and they do that because if they define themselves by a label, they don't have to think through the complexity of everything those organizations or groups stand for and they for. have a team and and team like whether it be sports or it be anything else, having a team gives you a sense of identity. Sure. Okay. Well, let me put it to you this way then, because I think that I'm not going to like <laughs> rage against any of those, what I do believe are deeply seated human tendencies. I think one of the great things of individualism and individualism then manifested through Western culture is that there are institutions and rules of law and all of those things that protect the people who don't have a savior complex. Right. Yes. So the minority of people who don't actually need that strong man, I can take care of my own life. Thank you very much. If there are things in the world, in the public sphere that are unjust, I can fight those battles myself. I can write my own letters. I can start my own causes. Yes. I, I can, can voice my, my own, my own yeah. newspaper. I can voice my own uh, grievances. I don't need someone stronger than me with a club to go take that shit from you if I don't like you. And on top of all that, I don't actually even need the alleged protection that you bring. Like, I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much. And I think that though it is a minority of people who are able to think like that and be that way and have an, a strong enough mind to venture out into the darknesses that gave Pascal so much fear and say, I don't actually, I'm not that scared. I don't think it's the norm. I think it's a significant minority of people in the world are this way. And I think one, maybe the greatest thing that Western culture has ever done is protect those people from yep. the mobs. 100% agree. And that, that is the thing that I am most... That, that is the thing that gives me the most pause and fear about a potential contemporary climate of the world, especially in countries like Canada, the United States, and Europe, is the potential disintegration of the protective structures for people who just don't want to be on your team, but also don't want to be on the other team. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's this idea that that everything has to be divided between black and white, good and evil, right and wrong, and and that 
if, if Proud Boys and Antifa. <laughs> yeah. There has to be sides and there has to be the Nazis versus, you know, that dichotomy is a simplification of the reality of the human experience. And when we're simplifying the human experience, we are immediately cutting people out because there are always going to be people who don't want to pick a side. There are, there's always going to be people who don't believe that life is that simple because it's not. Mm-hmm. It legitimately is not that simple. People do not make decisions solely, well, people do make decisions solely based on these ideologies, but like that is not the driving force of humans. Yeah. Well, to anyone listening out there, I believe the greatness is already in you. And all you need is yourself and the people you love and not the teams you can find yourself well, to, on. To quote, to quote Elon Musk, we must preserve the consciousness. <laughs> the <laughs> yes. beauty of consciousness must go. Um, there's another great little line here, which is just like a, a, a fun thing where when a child first catches an adult not telling the truth <laughs> and they realize that <laughs> that moment adults uh, aren't actually not better gods. than you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This one just made a nice impact on me. Page 33, a big act will warp history, but probably all acts do the same in their degree. Down to a stone stepped over the path or a breath caught at the sight of a pretty girl or a fingernail nicked in the garden soil. Um, And so I just, you know, the everyday things that affect us. And again, like that is like nice prose that he gives in his observational moments. Again, so I I think my favorite, actually my, my two favorite parts of this book are his observations and then his relationships, the relationships he creates between people. <laughs> yes. There's another great, he felt the warmth for his brother. You can feel only for one who is not perfect and they're no, therefore no target for your hatred. So they're not at your level. So you can't hate the weak. <laughs> <laughs> and this is funny. Like, yeah. Charles, Charles hated. Well, he, he wanted, like there's a part of him that wanted to hate Adam, but there's like a lot of the book where he couldn't. Because Adam, Adam was so much a, weaker than yeah. him. And yeah. So there's a part where there's there's a the townsfolk are not liking these whorehouses going on in their town, but instead of going after prostitution, they go after gambling, right? Like they take on gambling as the sin, and so they go for what's easy over a bigger problem, uh, and so it's like the problem of a big problem versus feeling like you can do something like. To take on prostitution in the temperance sense, which is what this town was going after, is that you would have to fundamentally go after the male desire to have sex. Yeah. Well, good yeah. fucking luck with that. Okay. <laughs> Particularly in this time where it's like there's no porn, there's nothing. It's yeah. just like. And so, okay. That is a much harder problem to take on. Let's just go after gambling because that's easier to stigmatize and it's less of a fundamental thing for people and so even though we're actually mad at the prostitution that's just too big of a problem so let's just go after the one we can do and it's like or it's not like there's any of these like well let's just do gambling responsibly it's like no shut it the fuck down you know and it reminds me a little bit of people who would rather go like this happens more on the internet but people who would rather go after pretty mundane and and more liberally minded people who make <laughs> say things aren't pleasant in religions than dealing with some of the really deep seated and often misogynistic things in a religion <laughs> yeah. that that yeah. are a much deeper and more rigorous problem to me a great example is it's much easier to go after 
people who say, well, maybe maybe the hijab is sometimes <laughs> repressive because people can't choose it in other countries. Like it's a lot easier to go after someone who criticizes that kind of thing than to go after the countries who have institutionalized laws against women not wearing hijabs and punishments being severe and brutal. Yeah. Like that problem I would submit is much more heinous <laughs> than someone commenting on <laughs> that uh, or saying, Hey, maybe it's not <laughs> a sign of, maybe it is something that represents oppression, not liberation because of all of these countries. It's easy to go after that person. What's hard is to go after the countries that uh, ritually abuse women who don't follow that. Well, to dig into it, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that individual freedom important, right? If even a thousand women in one of those countries didn't want to and, and decided they didn't want to and were, and were tormented and tortured for it, can we call that right? No, we we can't call that right. Like that goes against everything we value. And the attack that comes then is, well, you don't understand their culture. Well, um, and and so it, what it comes down to is, well, my culture, my belief is that the individual matters. Right. The individual is the most important unit in society. More mm-hmm. important than the family. More important than the than the town. More important than the state. Definitely. Whereas. Which That's you, definitely you need that choice. not the value yeah. of certain regimes, let's say, in, in countries where this is made to happen. So what the listener has to ask themselves is, what do you value? Yes. And it is an easy target. You're right. It's a much easier thing to attack someone who's not as likely to fight back. Yeah. Well, uh, and I mean... And who you can take out and get a notch in your belt. Just to be totally clear, if anyone chooses to wear the hijab in Canada, they have my support 110% because that's their choice. But it is a little naive to think, well, it's, it's 100% naive to think that is true around the world. And it's actually the underpinnings of the values of our society in Canada that allow people to have that choice in the first place. And that's not to be undermined. In yeah. my estimation. Yeah, I agree. But you can even take it to less <laughs> contentious issues. Like one of the reasons countries like China and uh, China and Russia are enemy isn't the right word. But things that are <laughs> necessary to worry about in the world is that they don't actually give a fuck about their people. <laughs> the, go- the governments of those have, countries don't care. They literally have concentration camps in northern China. The whole world's aware of it. You can look it up for Muslims. Yeah. They have concentration camps. They're called, they call them re-education camps. Right. And Is that like for the Uyghur people yeah. in western yeah. China? Yeah, exactly. And that's bad. And, and I think and, we should and, just and, call that bad. Yeah, it is bad. To but the it's, same level that but we it's call like, a residential school bad. But it's so, like, again, that problem runs so deep. Where's an activist to start? It's so much easier to <laughs> go after someone who uses the wrong pronoun, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. that's, the, that's the battle that's easier to fight. And it's not... Again, not to trivialize people's experience in the world. It's just that I think one of the things that I have noticed that I feel is like a kind of a human constant is that 
there's like this moral energy that people have where they want to make the world better. But some problems are just too hard. So go after the easy ones because you still get the problem-solving dopamine hit if you do something that you feel is worthwhile. But how do you even start with things just, like the Chinese it, government? Do hard things. Yeah. Just seek out and do hard things. And And I think that if... Well, again, it comes back to intellectual integrity. If you have a more panopticonic view of the world, more across everything, you'll find, if you're not trying to be a bully, like if you're actually trying to have engaging conversations with people, that you're trying to make a case, but you're trying to win people over, you're trying to persuade people. You're not trying to bully them into your belief system. Those things that are more popular on the internet to complain about or fight about or be an activist about. I think you'll have more clout with those things if you admit to everything that's going on in the world and working on all of it and triaging a little bit. <laughs> I pick, think pick that's the worst things. Go yeah, after those start with first. the worst yeah. things <laughs> if you can. Yeah. And if you can't, that's fine too, but just don't be an ass. And then there's a part in the book where it's during World War 1 where a bunch of the local people beat up Mr. Fenchel, because yeah, he he's German, German accent, yeah. right? And so they tarred him, and um, it's like to me that's just more fodder for the individual. So, like to tie it back all the way to our first episode, our Carras versus our Grandfaloon. Your nation is your Grandfaloon, and potentially Mr. Fenchel is part of your Carras. The people who organically are part of your life, and yet for a lot of these small-minded people in in Cal- in this town in California, they don't care. He's German, we're fighting the Germans, let's fuck them up. And these arbitrary lines, nationalism, religion, things that don't like in a physical sense don't exist. They're just they're projections of our minds to do violence to others for crimes that they haven't committed is one of the darkest things about our species. Oh, I mean, and and it's, it's, and it's, it's only it, it's what allows you to do horrible things on mass. Well, as soon as you can see someone as not human and you and you designate them no longer valuable or as valuable as the people who are valuable to you, that's when you've crossed the Rubicon in my mind. Yeah. So keep those uh Mr. Fenchels alive. <laughs> yes. This is a great line. The medical profession is unconsciously irritated by lay knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wrote, ego? (laughs) Wait, doctors have egos? (laughs) I like that. It just, it made me chuckle. There's a few last little parts that are so meaningful. One of the last things is a line from Steinbeck. And he's talking about how a gene, like a work of genius or a, an exploding star into bringing something new into the world. Or I, I don't know, what's it called when a star is created? <laughs> I can't yeah, remember. I have no idea. Anyway, for the, a really cool event. For the astronomers <laughs> out there, you can help us with that one. But it's like the how to make something new in the world that other people care about. And he writes, once the miracle has taken place, the group can build and extend it. But the group never invents anything. The preciousness lies in the lonely mind of a man. And I must fight against any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. And I just have to say, there is probably no better line that is more in consonance with 
the passion of my own heart than that. What you just quoted is that section that I've been going back to over and over again, where he's talking about the glory, where he's talking about choice, where he's talking about the individual. That line is from that. Yeah. And and just how, again, the kindredness I feel with Steinbeck is that, yes, once something has been created, you can you can make groups and organizations around it to perpetuate it and grow. But the um, the genesis of it, <laughs> if you pardon the <laughs> pun of the book, <laughs> it, it has to come from the mind of, of, an individual. of an individual, which again ties back to the necessity of protecting everyone. Because only by protecting everyone's individual agency, regardless of any immutable characteristic, is how you can guarantee that great new things will come into the world. And unless you are someone who happens to not want any great new things, which I think if you say that, you actually haven't delved into the, the depths of all the things who, who, that you happen to enjoy in the world. Those people just sound awful. <laughs> well, and I would still say they probably oh, drive dude. a car or have a phone, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which, again, stemmed from someone being protected so they could go do something new and dangerous and potentially unsettling to others. And so... I just wanted to make sure that that the vitality of that sentiment in Steinbeck is as resonant with me as anything I've ever come across in a book. And so then that segues really nicely into the very end of the book. And I think they probably mention it, the word itself. It was a Hebrew word. It's spelled T-I-M-S-H-E-L, which I read as Timshel. There's probably a cool little accent on the word that I understand, but Team Shill is this basically this idea of thou mayest, right? So, like we've talked about this whole book, thou mayest. Well, give your thoughts on thou mayest, David. Well, okay, so they 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 put it in the middle of a dichotomy because there's thou shalt overcome sin; it's a prophecy, or or thou will become sin; it's a command. Thou mayest is you have a choice to do this, and I think the beauty of the wisdom there is take religion out of it, take any form of religion, whether it be Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever, take all that out. There are different ways of viewing the world without religion, and one of those ways of viewing the world is that it's just things happen to me, right? They just occur to me, and I just have to endure them, and that's more of a thou shalt mentality, right? It's um, prophesying what shall come what 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 will be is what will be it's that whole kind of fatalism that can descend on a person where they're just like oh this is just how the world is and then there's a thou will the command right and and you see people going through life as if driven by demons behind them like that this is liz or liz samuel's wife this is samuel's wife she's driven by the thou will and her whole existence is and even to, to an extent, Aaron's too, this is what I've been commanded to do. This is what I must do. Nothing else matters. These are your radicals. These are your ideologues. These are the people who live their entire life burning with passion for some unho- unholy, unknown fire, right? Because they're just, they believe that they've been told by some divine thing or the earth or or facts that this is their reality. But the thou mayest, <laughs> I think, are the most 
happy and joyous people because they're the ones who are said, no, 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 no matter what's happening, you get to choose. And you don't get to choose everything. You don't get to choose whatever you want. You don't get to pursue whatever you want. But you may choose your mentality towards that thing. You can actually decide how you're going to interact with any event that comes into your life. And I think Sam Harris has really introduced me to this idea with his with the meditation stuff that he does, where when a thought comes into your mind, you can consciously deal with that thought. You can consciously interact with that thought. And when you do, you realize that it's just as fleeting as a noise you hear or, or a sound that you experience. You can't hold on to these things because they're experiences. The thou mayest then decide, how will I interact with these things? Think of a happy thought, right? Think of something that makes you happy. Now you're feeling happier. Think of something that makes you sad. Now you're feeling sadder. You, now, it's not that simple, and it's, it's a very complex um, tradition of mindfulness, let's say. But the point is, you don't have to wallow. You don't have to be who Adam was after he was shot, where he spent 11 years cycling through the same series of thoughts. You have the power. You may do something. And so for me, it's a joyous and triumphant praising of the human spirit to say you can overcome your experience you can overcome your circumstances thou may mm-hmm. yeah you're, you're totally right it's just a completely different way of framing volition in a contrast to those thou shalt or thou shalt not uh, thou will do this thou will not do this because it makes it makes the important variable choice, not obligation or not destiny. Or not guilt or not shame, yeah. right? Like, yeah, this, this word team shell, which is thou mayest. And it's something that I feel like, again, it's one of those things in a story or a book or a speaker where the, it's something comes up and it's like, oh yeah, I feel like I already know this in a way. So like, take it out of the realm of ethics for a second. Like I, one of the things that I like to do and it's, I don't know if it's a love language or not, but it's something that I get a lot of joy out of is I like giving other people small gifts like buying dinner or bringing like just something fun to them that I know they'll like unprompted and without expectation of return or anything, just because I know it'll bring like a modicum of joy to their day. And it's not because I should, and it's not because I must, but it's because I can, right? I have, as you may. Yeah. yeah, I have the ability to. And I like, again, it's not a fully formulated thought, let alone a theory, but I think that there is something really important in morality and ethics to the idea that doing things that help others or all of the things that we can do aren't important they don't seem important to me because I should do them. I don't need to give people gifts. I should, like, I don't should do it. But I, why I think it, there's something to it is because I can do it. Like, I actually happen to be a particular organism and live in a universe where I can have consciousness where I think to myself that 
okay, well, I want to do this today for this person, or I don't want to do that bad thing to them. And so the commandment style of ethics, I think, is just like a completed theory, let's say. And I would love to move into something like the volitional form of ethics, because I think that that actually is much more closer to a our evolved moral sense and psychology and gives people latitude to be forthcoming with why they're doing what they're doing. And it's much more human-centered than anything supernatural, certainly. But also, it avoids party affiliations as well. Yeah, I should <laughs> vote for the most liberal party, but I can vote for whatever goddamn party I want <laughs> based on my own conscience. Right. So... All of that, I think, is the wrap-up of the book, is this team shell, thou mayest choose. You shouldn't, or you, like it's not, you should or you should will, but you may. And that is a vista of freedom, I think, to the human soul, like you said, which is the wellspring of everything good, and it's what motivates both Lee and Samuel, who are our heroes in this book. Yeah, And so... The last line of the book that I wanted to leave you with is the line, and it's one of the best lines in literature, and it's something that Lee is saying. Now that you know that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Yes. You know? And I love that. So, I wish you a happy team shell, Uh, (laughs) Mr. David. And you as well, Mr. Luke. (laughs) So, anyway, um, do you have anything else to add? I just think, go into this book... It's going to be a process. It's going to take time. But if, if you're reading this book, there is so much to be gleaned. Uh, I used to be the kind of guy who would only ever read a book once. Right. Uh, because I already knew the story and I didn't really want to, you know, I wanted new stories. Rereading this book has just reminded me of how much you can forget and miss. And there is so much here to be gleaned. It's it's worth rereading if you've already read it, and it's worth reading a couple times mm-hmm. if you've never read it. Uh, yeah, I think it has a lot of rereadable aspects to it. Steinbeck, to me, like, I would say Steinbeck is a ethical and a genius. Like, There's oh, a yeah. weird genius in this book that is transcendental. So, anyway, this is uh, Happy Team Shell to all of you. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And mine's David Parker. And uh, we hope to find you east of Eden one day. (laughs) Thanks, guys. See ya. (laughs) Bye.